Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas, from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167, or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, to stream our television show, get our recipes, or take our free online cooking classes. Enjoy the show. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. My favorite flatbread is called Katukla Ekmek. It's oily, it's super spicy, it's salty. It's just kind of one of those addictive things. That was Robin Eckhart, author of Istanbul and Beyond, who has spent 20 years or so eating and researching the foods of Turkey, from the dairy-rich cuisine of the Black Sea coast to the amazing breakfast served in the eastern provinces. There's a lot more to Turkish cooking, of course, than kofta and baklava. I'll be speaking to her later in the show. But first, Mike Sutter is here to talk about his year-long quest to eat a taco a day in San Antonio. Sutter is a food critic for the San Antonio Express News. Hey, Mike, how are you? I'm doing well, Christopher. So nice to talk with you. You're uh, doing 365 days of tacos. Uh, Where are you in the 365 days? Let's see, it's day 213. We've got about 152 left to go. I think we're at about 800 tacos so far this year in San Antonio. How many different taco places are there in a town like San Antonio? 
Well, there are at least 365, but as I put my list together, there's a hundred on the waiting list so far, but that doesn't begin to cover it because this is a town that has taquerias built into its bones. There's history in these bricks. So let me ask, what is a taco? Is it anything you put on a tortilla or is it a more complicated definition? Well, I love that you asked that because you can call anything in a tortilla a taco in the same way that you can call anything that you put between buns a burger, but that doesn't exactly make it so. But for for purposes of our conversation, let's start with an excellent handmade flour tortilla. And then what you put in there just depends on what you grew up with. What does your household like to eat in that tortilla? Well, that becomes a taco for you. And does it matter if you eat it open-faced or whether you actually roll it up or fold it up? Does that have anything to do with what a taco is? Well, I think their traditional form is just folded so that everything doesn't just fall off one end when you bite into the other end. But what you don't want to get into is burrito territory, which is, which is a matter of folding. So we've got that beef with California a little bit, which knows it's tacos, but also the burrito comes into play where you fold it at the bottom, like almost like you're swaddling a baby. Right. You know, we're not babies here. We're, we're full-grown people. We can handle just a simple fold-over. <laughs> Those Californians, they're not going to take your birthright, right? Oh, gosh, not at all. And I don't mean to disparage California. They've got the similar Mexican-American presence, and they certainly have the, the same birthright that we do to it. So let's get down to a core issue here. Let's Which, do. Yeah, I mean, you know, let's quit fooling around. <laughs> so uh, can you be a traditionalist with a taco? That is, there are only certain kinds of things that could go on to a tortilla. Or is a taco a philosophical concept that, that can do, you can do anything you want and you're not going to start a start a war? Well, I, I think you can be an insufferable purist uh, on just about any food form or any, anything that you choose in life. I, I want to have some fun with it. I think... Anything that you shave off a, a trompo, a nice El Pastor, anything that you boil in oil, uh, you know, a la Macbeth, um, carnitas, uh, they make fantastic tacos. Uh, puffy tacos, which is what we call here just a, a thick um, patty of masa deep fried until it's in that magical state between crunchy and soft. Um, Are you saying a puffy taco is still a taco? Absolutely I am. It's somewhere <laughs> between a sope and a traditional crispy taco, but um, you've got to have it just flexible enough to where it'll fold. It crackles at the edges, but it's not going to break because it's strong. That's something I would say that is possibly native to San Antonio. The places that are famous for it, uh, Ray's Drive-In, Oscar's Puffy Tacos, Henry's Puffy Tacos, we give those guys first names because we feel that familiar with that taco form. This is where food meets religion, evidently. There's a certain <laughs> reverence in your voice. <laughs> um, you're quite a good writer. You wrote, uh, uh, quote, I found some brains in my barbacoa. I found a knuckle bone in my cabrito. But that's sort of an occupational hazard. Any full animal roast is a contact sport. <laughs> this is the NFL of tacos. I like that. That was good. Well, thank you. So are there things, there must be things people have done to the taco that you think, from a creative point of view, are just completely out of bounds? I mean, there has to be some rules here, right? Well, I think that um, when you're putting fried chicken and queso and shredded lettuce and green peppers, uh, roasted peppers, and 
um, you're throwing all of that into a taco at the same time. It's an excellent snack wrap, but does that start to get a, so far away from a taco that you're bastardizing the form in a way that it starts to lose its cohesiveness? Um, I, I've always thought that the tortilla was the make or break point for a correct taco. If you're not starting with handmade flour or corn, you're already doing it wrong. Right. If the tortilla's wrong, the taco's never right. Mike, you are a taco philosopher. I mean, obviously, tacos mean a lot more to you than just the taco. There's something else going on here other than lunch or dinner. Well, I think we're not just feeding our bodies. We're feeding our souls. And I look to the people that I've met to reinforce that. I loved Eduardo Gonzalez, who does Mexico City mini tacos, And he said uh, something that moved me at the end of a very long day. He said, thanks for showing what immigrants bring to our food culture, especially in this charged political climate. That's how he put it. Mike Sutter, keep up the good work. Well, thank you so much, and, and keep up the good work over there, too. Thank you. That was Mike Sutter, a food critic for the San Antonio Express News. You can subscribe and listen to Milk Street Radio anytime as a podcast. It's available on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Google Play, and Spotify. Just subscribe and get all of our shows downloaded to your phone on Fridays. Right now, my esteemed co-host Sarah Moulton and I will take some of your calls. Sarah Moulton is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of the book Home Cooking 101. Sarah, are you ready and willing? I am looking forward to it. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? Hi, this is Cam Warzak. I'm calling from Rochester, New York. Hi, Cam. How can we help you? I have a question today about kitchen gadgets. Ooh, my favorite. This is specifically about gadgets that do one thing and one thing only. I'm thinking of, like, clever, whimsical little things that are sold under the assumption that they're either super convenient or save a ton of time. The adjective I would use is stupid, but that's... Well, I was going to say, some of them clutter up your drawer. I'm wondering if there's any that you think are must-haves. No. Yes. What? Well, I used to cover gadgets on Good Morning America, so I played around with a lot of them. Name two. Okay, egg slicer. Yeah, okay, You use it for strawberries, mushrooms, you can slice all sorts of things, beets, cooked beets. Another one I love is grapefruit spoon. Serrated edge that helps you take in along the lines nicely. Right. It's not just good for grapefruits, but it's good for taking the seeds out of chilies. Just use a half teaspoon measurer. No, it doesn't have those teeth. Also, it's really good. Say you have a really fresh mushroom and you want to get the stem out, you know, like a white mushroom. It really helps to get in there and dig it out. Very helpful. You've opened a can of beans here. Sarah's like off and running. I am. I love gadgets. Her face is all lit up here. Well, you know, and then I have the ones that just do one thing. Well, actually, two things for me. So, My all-time current favorite is the giant cake lifter. It's like a bench scraper, only much bigger, and the idea is... It's just a rectangle of metal about six inches long that has a wooden or plastic handle. Right. It's for getting things off a counter into a bowl. Like you're making a pie dough and you want to scrape it off the counter. And I use it for that, but I started using my bench scraper for picking up chopped onions or other chopped items. Chinese vegetable cleaver does that. Okay. The giant cake lifter is much bigger than a bench scraper. So let's say you've chopped up, you know, a whole head of broccoli that you want to transfer to a sheet pan. You can just load it all up on this giant cake lifter, and I just love it. Okay, I'm done now. You're done? Yeah. 
I take a different point of view. I, the older I get and the more time I've spent in the kitchen, I just have a few knives I like, a cutting board, a wooden bowl. I do have a standing mixer. I do have a food processor. Those are helpful. All those gadgets of which I've had dozens and dozens and dozens. I haven't even used my egg slicer in years, to be honest. I like simplicity. Everybody that knows that you're a cook gives them to you as gifts. Well, you know what I find now? If I'm whipping heavy cream or even egg whites, I'll use a whisk half the time. Is It's just I don't have to pull a standing mixer out. Sarah's looking at me, man. You should see what she's <laughs> seeing her face. I get pleasure out of doing things simply now. I do think, though, there's one thing I can't live without, and that's an instant meat thermometer. Yeah. A good one, because yeah. I use that all the time. Yeah. What about you, Cam? Do you have anything you love? Yeah, I do. Aside from the hard-boiled egg slicer, which uh, Sarah had already answered. Oh, you agree with me on that okay. one. Oh, I feel vindicated. I, I do. The other thing, too, you've seen those like Wolverine-style meat shredding claws. Yes, I've seen pulling those. pulling apart yep. soft meat like, after like, like a pork. pork. Yeah. Right. I thought at first they were silly. found out that I use them quite a bit. and They're like bear claws. <laughs> yeah. Exactly, and they're fun to use. They make just good put it on and feel powerful sort of, uh, <laughs> sort of tools like that. Those are two things. There is one thing. My father-in-law gave this to me. One of those huge, wide fish spatulas used for grill. So you have a nice piece of fish. You get the entire piece off at one time. So I, I think there are a few. But in general, I probably have a basement full of things I don't use anymore. In general, a knife, a cutting board, and a wooden spoon can probably get the job done. I like tongs. And, and an instant read thermometer. And tongs. Yeah, and a whisk. And the instant read. Yeah, of course. Thanks things. for taking the yeah, time. My, to okay, that, pleasure. I, Thanks. I appreciate your yeah, answers. Sure. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Welcome to Mill Street. Who's calling? This is Patricia Doxy from Salt Lake City, Utah. Can we help you? I am really hoping you can because we have this delicious butterscotch pudding recipe that we love that we successfully made twice in D.C. And since moving to Salt Lake City, which has 4,000 feet of elevation, uh, we've made it twice and failed. So we don't know if the elevation is the problem or if there's something in our technique. Is this a from scratch? This is not mighty fine butterscotch pudding. This is an actual recipe. Correct, correct. So we make the caramel, and then we add the milk and the cream yeah. in degrees, and then we bring that mixture to a boil and add that to an egg and cornstarch mixture that has a bit of steamed milk in it. The caramel process is happening like normal, like we're used to, but then when we add it all in one pour, the mixture just isn't thickening. So we're hoping that you can fix this problem for us so that we can continue to make this delicious butterscotch pudding. Usually what I would do is you make the caramel and then you add the cream to it and then you pour it into the egg mixture slowly and whisk it as you go. I would put it back on the stove with the cornstarch, stirring gently and bringing it up to temperature because you, okay. you need that temperature to be, what, 175 or something like that for the okay. cornstarch to really be activated. My guess is there's not enough heat there for the cornstarch to really do its job, right? I'm interested that the egg goes in in the beginning with the cornstarch. I would have thought you would have thickened the whole thing first and then tempered it into the egg and then put the egg back in in the end. So the egg goes in when the cornstarch goes in? What this recipe recommends doing is boiling the caramel and the milk so it comes to a rolling boil 
and then pouring that into a bowl. That bowl has the egg and cornstarch mixture with a little bit of steamed milk. So you never bring it back to a boil. Right. Correct. That's the problem right there. The cornstarch is not going to do anything unless you bring the cornstarch to a full boil. I think the fundamental recipe sounds a little dubious. Just put it over sort of medium-low heat. And don't whisk it hard because cornstarch does not take too vigorous physical activity. So would you do that before you ever added the egg? You make the caramel, you add the cream or whatever, you pour that slowly, you whisk it into the egg cornstarch mixture so you don't cook the eggs. And you put it back and on until it gets to 175. And you put that back on the heat over medium-low or medium and stir gently with a wooden spoon. And it should get up to about 175, not past 180 because the eggs might start to go. Why don't you give that a whirl and let us know? Just to make you feel better, butterscotch pudding was one of the hardest recipes we ever had. Really? Why? To get that deep caramel flavor? To get the flavor and to get everything set properly. It's not an easy recipe, actually. Give that a shot and let us know. Thank you so much. Thanks, Patricia. Thank you. Thanks for calling. This is Most Your Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. If you have a cooking failure, a conundrum, or a complaint, or if you just want to try to stump us, give us a ring. That number is 855-426-9843. One more time. 855-426-9843, or just send us an email. We'd love to hear from you at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? Pat from Duluth. Hi, Pat. What is your question? This spring, I tried an asparagus white bean soup recipe, and about a week or two later, I was listening to your program, which I love, and a woman called in about freezing creamy soups. And she was having some issues with that. And this soup freezes really well, and it's creamy. And it's from an Ayurvedic cookbook. And I wondered if you had tried beans to use in soups to make them creamy, and then it's easily frozen. Yeah, we use beans, potatoes, other things, puree part of them to give that creaminess to the soup. The only thing is I think potatoes don't freeze particularly well, but beans do. Maybe the two of them together would work well. White beans do freeze well, unlike cream. Interestingly enough, years ago, I ate at the French Laundry, which is this very high-end, very, you know, European-style restaurant. I remember the first course was three vegetable soups, and one of them was parsnips, and I love parsnips. And I couldn't taste the parsnips for the cream. And what I came to realize, and my training is French, and, you know, you're supposed to use cream and butter all over the place. And I came to the realization that actually cream, you know, it serves a purpose. It's got wonderful mouthfeel. It can make things seem rich, but that it tamps down flavor. So it sort of Uh, turned off the lights on the parsnips. So, Pat, I never use cream or milk in soups. I always puree them. And, you know, it's not just – so carrots are good and fennel is good and celery is good. Any vegetable, onions are good. You just puree it to cream it up. You don't ever need to use cream. But beans are fantastic, and they also do really give you a nice mouthfeel. Okay, because this is such a simple recipe, and I added a little bit more to the original recipe, but I just added an onion and some garlic to it. Nice. I approve that decision. It's so good. Everyone who has tasted it loves it, and I just think it's a real winner. I'm glad that you do that, too. I feel good. (laughs) Oh, yeah. No, I recommend it. I think you're doing the right thing. White beans are great. You can use actually use canned white beans in a soup, and that also works fine. Yeah. Good for you. That's a better, better deal than cream. You're right. Great. Thank you so much. And yeah. we love your program so very much. Thanks. Thank you. We really appreciate the call. Thanks. Okay. Bye-bye. 
You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my conversation with Robin Eckhart. She's author of Istanbul and Beyond, about the little-known cuisines of Turkey after the break. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash boast. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. You know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first. And that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Robin Eckhart is a food and travel journalist, also author of Istanbul and Beyond. Robin and her husband have traveled all over Turkey, from the eastern coast of the Black Sea to the provinces in the southeast, and that's where the food is, in fact, inspired by the cooking of the Middle East. Robin, how are you? Good. How are you? Good. Um, what, what was your first experience in Istanbul? It was in 1998. Uh, my husband, David Hagerman, who photographed the book, and I uh, traveled to Istanbul when we were living in Shanghai, we had three weeks of vacation. It was February. We had some frequent flyer miles. Europe was too expensive. So we ended up in Turkey with no previous research. And um, we got off the plane about midnight, and the taxi drove us through the streets of Sultanahmet. I remember the Blue Mosque uh, lit up against the sky, and I just knew that I was in an entirely different place. It was really amazing. It was a it was a very memorable experience, and I, I fell in love with Istanbul and Turkey on that trip. So is it memorable for, among other reasons, that it's such a mix of cultures? It just sits there in the east. Uh, you know, obviously the the Roman Empire existed there for a thousand years after it, it died in Rome. Is it just a huge mix of cultures? Is that what's appealing? Istanbul is just, it's hard to describe. It's a jumble of so many places in the world. It is bustling, and then there are these pockets of uh, neighborhoods, old neighborhoods, where men are sitting out drinking tea in front of tea houses, and you just kind of feel like you've been transported back 100 or 200 years ago. Or 2,000 years ago. Exactly. (laughs) In that case. Because you can have tea beneath the aqueduct, right? So, okay, I get up early, uh, and I'm going to go out in the street, and I want to get breakfast. So tell me about early breakfast in Istanbul. Well, of course, it's the simit, what people call the Turkish bagel. Let's just call it a simit. It's it's um, wonderful in its own right. I'm drawn to the water. That's one of the things I love about Istanbul. So I'm usually staying on the European side, and I will go right down to the ferry docks in Karakoy, and I will grab a simit. 
and I will catch a ferry over to Kadikoy on the Asian side, and I'll buy a glass of tea on the ferry, and I will sit on the ferry and enjoy the 20-minute ride and the views, and I'll eat my simit and drink my tea. And to me, that is, the ferries to me are the ultimate Istanbul experience. So tell us about simit. Just describe it. Well, it is a basically a bread dough ring. It can be crusted in sesame seeds or not. It can be twisted and braided or not. It's crunchy, chewy, savory, uh, not sweet. So I assume from a food perspective, there's all the surrounding countries, Syria, there's Iran, Iraq. I, I assume that there's lots of influences. Is there Turkish cuisine that's distinctively Turkish, or in every dish do you see something from somewhere else? Well, I think that's uh, what really uh, inspired the book, uh, is that I don't, I don't really see a Turkish cuisine. Uh, I see many Turkish cuisines. And um, when, we, when David and I began traveling out east, uh, we began to see how uh, the cuisines of various parts of Turkey are quite distinct based on the landscape, the geography, the climate, and also the various historical influences, migration flows, etc. So you have Hatay in the southeast, which is very Mediterranean, and it abuts Syria. But uh, what does that mean, Hatay? Hatay is Hatay province. Uh, in the southeast. Um, it's the the most southern province. It sort of is a finger of land that goes down into Syria, and actually it used to be part of Syria. So the cuisine there is very, um, what we think of as Levant-influenced, lots of meze, spicy, uh, olive oil, lashings of olive oil, lots of pomegranates and pomegranate molasses, uh, hummus, uh, which we all know, baba ganoush, um, uh, Kebabs cooked in wood-fired ovens, but not kebabs as we usually think of kebabs, but big, large meat patties, something like kibbe. Mm -hmm. um, and then if you go up to the Black Sea coast, which is, you know, the completely opposite end of the country, you have a very different landscape. It's lush, uh, rainy, um, temperate, um, gets cool in winter, but not cool enough to snow. And you've got lots of greens, chard, uh, collard-like greens called karalahana, dried corn, which is a very big part of the diet. Not much lamb or mutton, more beef if there's any meat eaten here, and lots of fish. So Black Sea Coast, anchovies rule, uh, anchovy season is huge. Turks call anchovies the prince of fishes. And um, well, now why is that? Because they can be used in so many different because ways. They love them. Oh, well, that's a good Turks reason. Turks just love anchovies prince. and they are, they appear in everything. <laughs> I like the I like the answer to the question why they call them the Prince of Fish. Because they like them. They like them. Of course. They love them. That's a that's a good reason. They're the best fish. Uh dry corn, do you mean to turn into a meal or what else is done with dry corn? It's uh used uh in whole kernel, so it's cooked into soups with this uh karalahana, this collard like green and uh cranberry beans. It's ground uh to make into cornbread. Uh, yeasted or not yeasted, it's... Um, Can I stop you for a second? Sure. When you say cornbread, is, I assume it's nothing like American cornbread. It's a different thing, is it? Uh, it's actually a lot like American oh. cornbread. Um, they do sort of like griddled breads, so it's more like a corn cake. I've never uh, seen sweet cornbread. That's something I don't see on the Black Sea Coast. But I often think of the Black Sea Coast or Black Sea Coast cuisine as sort of very akin to American Southern food, sans the pork, 
uh, because you've got these collard grains hmm. that show up everywhere and you've got cornmeal everywhere or corn. Well, if you're from the South, the idea of sweet cornbread is equally devastating. I've heard that. Yes. So let's talk about some specifics. Let's talk about flatbreads. I, it's so interesting here that we do yeast breads, but we almost never do flatbreads and flatbreads you can make in very little time. So talk to me about flatbreads in, in Turkey. Um, flatbreads, there's a whole world of them. Um, my favorite flatbread, well, everyone, a lot of people know lahmacun, which is uh, a flatbread spread with, should be very thinly spread with a paste of lamb and spices. One of my favorite flatbreads, which isn't so known here, is again from Hatay province. It's called Katukla Ekmek. And uh, it's made with a local cheese called sirk, which is um, kind of a whey cheese kneaded with all kinds of spices and tomato paste and pepper paste. Mm. It's very spicy and then it's dried. Okay. And so they take this sirk cheese and they ground it up. They knead it up with uh, more tomato paste, more chili paste. Mm. Uh, everyone has their own recipe. Nigella seeds, cumin, lots of chili and olive oil. And then they spread it very, very thinly mm. over a flatbread and whip it in the wood-fired oven. And it is... It's oily, it's super spicy, it's salty. It's mm. just kind of one of those addictive things. I think the thing with flatbreads that have toppings in Turkey is they're not laden with toppings the way they're often served in restaurants in the States. It's always about a very, very thin mm. topping so that the bread and the texture of the bread shines and isn't compromised by a heavy topping. Were you suggesting here in the States we put too much stuff on, on bread? Yeah. <laughs> Pizza too sometimes, right? What are you talking about? Um, uh, eggplant. Um, you know, in the Middle East, eggplant's often roasted uh, uh, and then with garlic and spices. It's, it's, it's a very different preparation. Uh, talk to me about eggplant in Turkey. Uh, it's also roasted and served um, as, a, as a meze or an appetizer. Um, but other ways too. I mean, if if anchovies are the prince of fishes, then eggplant must be the prince of vegetables in Turkey because it's everywhere. One of my favorite preparations is called karniyarik, which means split stomach. The eggplant is uh, in Turkey; it's deep fried, uh, split open, and you know squeezed open like a baked potato, and then filled with a sort of meat ragu and baked again. Um, in the book, I, I roast the eggplant instead, instead of deep frying it. Um, another great recipe is from um, Diyarbakir province. It's called dizme, which means um, to uh, arrange in a circle. And you, you've got uh, lamb or beef uh, kufte, or meatballs, and you've got thick slices of eggplant. And you fry uh, the outsides of the eggplant to get it uh, soft and browned. And then you you arrange the kufte and the eggplant in alternating circles in a spiral on a bed of tomato sauce that's heavily mm. seasoned with thyme. That goes in the oven. And um, it's great because you've got the chewy meatballs and the mm. soft eggplant. And yeah. Istanbul and Turkey uh, were modernized around the First World War, right? About Turkey and the food of Turkey and the cooking of Turkey. How's that informed your approach to cooking at home on a daily basis? What What are the takeaways for you in terms of technique, how you think about flavors, how you think about cooking? You mentioned they don't uh, saute meat, which is 
something, of course, you do in France all the time. Other, other ways of just thinking about the process that has have changed your, your mind. I'm a lot more comfortable with breads than when I started the book. I mean, whipping up a, a flatbread is really not that big a deal. So I usually have uh, flatbreads on hand because I've also found you can freeze them and refresh them in the oven. I guess I'm a lot more liberal with spices like urfa pepper. It really goes with so many things, and I use it beyond Turkish cooking. Pomegranate molasses, discovering pomegranate molasses was kind of life-changing changing for me. It's definitely a staple in my cupboard. I use it in salad dressings all the it's time. It's my secret ingredient <clears throat> in no, everything. Yeah. yeah. And um, I think another thing is the way that um, Turkish cooks use herbs, not as necessarily... They do use them as seasonings, but they also treat them in salads a bit like lettuce. So, you know, whole mint leaves, whole oregano leaves, uh, whole parsley leaves and coriander, all that goes in the salad now for me, along with lettuce. It might be half herbs. Um, And also, um, I probably treat meat a bit differently than I did. Uh, I use, I actually eat less of it, but I eat it more often. It's more of a flavoring now the way it's right. used in Turkey. Just a small amount of meat in a soup or in a saute gives the flavor of meat uh, without, you know, leaving that sort of heavy feeling. Robin, uh, thank you. This is, um, I need to go to Istanbul and you need to yes, be there. Yes, you do. <laughs> uh, to help me. So. And you need to go beyond Istanbul. I do. Yeah. Uh, it's just been fascinating. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. That was Robin Eckhart, a food and travel journalist, also author of Istanbul and Beyond. As a student tourist in Istanbul in 1971, I quickly realized that there was an enormous amount of history literally beneath my feet, from vast cisterns and palaces to ancient columns, some of them dating all the way back a thousand years. And of course, the same is true of Turkish food. From butter and olive oil, chilies and spices, cornbread and flatbread, The foods of Turkey are vastly richer and also more varied than what lies on the surface, which is kofta and baklava. As the world becomes smaller, local cuisines become richer and deeper. The more you know, the more there is to know. Right now, I'm heading into the Milk Street kitchen to chat with Catherine Smart about this week's recipe. Catherine, how are you? I'm fine, thanks. How are you? I'm good. Today is Pesto Day. Uh, pesto, which some people know, I guess, comes from the word pestare in Italian, which means to pound or crush. So when we say pesto, we mean Ligurian pesto made with basil and pine nuts. Of course, that's one of hundreds of kinds of pesto. And there's another kind that some people know here that's, that's very popular in Italy called pesto trapanese. And, and what is that? So pesto trapanese differs from the pesto that we're familiar with because it has tomatoes in it. So it's going to have some sweetness and it's going to be red um, as well as green. We do have a cup of basil in there, but it's not that big mess of basil that you would think of um, traditionally. We also swapped out the pine nuts. You know, they can be really expensive. They go rancid quickly. And we use whole almonds, which have great flavor, uh, and you're much more likely to have them on hand. So is this the dump and uh, whir in the food processor? Indeed, it is. Because honestly, Chris, I mean, who has a mortar and pestle at home? 
I do. I do. Okay, right well, here. Of course you do, Christopher Kimball, but not <laughs> everyone in America does. So you can still get a great texture uh, from using the food processor. We actually use whole almonds. The, the slivers could be kind of mealy. Um, if you use the whole almonds, even in the food processor, you can grind them in a way that you still get some nice texture. So we're using those big, completely tasteless red tomatoes from the supermarket? Uh, no, Chris, we're not. As you know, the grocery store tomatoes can be really iffy, but we found that grape tomatoes were consistently sweet and less watery even at the grocery store, even in winter. So my biggest gripe in home cooking is people don't use enough salt. So I, I know you have some cheese in here, but you do add salt too, right? We do, Chris. We use kosher salt. And I'm glad you brought that up because, you know, tomatoes have quite a bit of liquid and we don't want this to be watery. So by adding the salt at the end of the recipe, uh, we kept the sauce a really nice non-watery consistency. If you were to add that salt in the beginning, it would draw all the moisture out of the tomatoes and that's where you end up with a runny sauce. So you're probably going to tell me that I have to use a very specific shape of pasta, right? Of course. I am, Chris. So we love gamelli and rigatoni because they have great ridges um, and lots of texture so that the sauce clings to it. But you can go ahead and find any kind of sturdy shape that is going to have some nice texture for that sauce to cling to. So so if you're tired of the traditional Genovese, the basil pasta, now it's time for Trapanese. Yes, add it to your repertoire. Thank you, Catherine. You're welcome, Chris. You can find our recipe for Trapanese pasta at 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions and dilemmas with my co-host, Sarah Moulton, after the break. 
of course, your liquor to it and you add some sparkling water, whatever. Brilliant. Rum. It takes about a minute. And uh, you can make mojitos for eight. You know what I'm thinking about? Things that really take a long time you'd never want to do by hand. I wouldn't anyway. One of them would be homemade butter. It takes about 12 to 15 minutes, and it is so much fun. Try to get fresh Yeah, you have to get cream good stuff. from. Hey, you can go to the farmer's market. Uh, we have great ones here in New okay. York City. I was just at my farmer's market this morning. Right. So you get really good fresh cream that's not ultra-pasteurized. And then you put it in the stand mixer with the whisk, and you start slow, and it will beat up into whipped cream, and then it will go beyond whipped cream till it separates into butter and the original buttermilk, which is a clear liquid. And that takes about 12 to 15 minutes. You would never want to do that by hand or with a hand mixer. You would break it before you got there. And then what you need to do is take the butter out of the tines of the stand mixer, and you take it with a bowl underneath it so you don't lose any of the butter, and you wash it underwater to wash out the excess milk solids. Otherwise, the butter will stink. It's sort of fun. You just squish it in cold water until you see the water running clear. Or you could just soak it in ice water and squish it in there, keep changing the water. And then you've got fresh butter. You can freeze it or you can serve it for dinner. You could go to a store and buy Ishiree, some nice salted French butter. No, this is better. Really? This is killer. The simpler answers would be bread doughs, pizza doughs, Large quantities of egg whites. Although the danger with a stand mixer and egg whites, you overdo it. it's very easy to overbeat them because you're not oh. feeling it. So just stop before you think you need to. And then take the bowl off and take finish the by beater hand. off the whisk and then finish, finish it, it by, by hand. hand. Yeah. Gotcha. You have a whole new world open to you. And then, of course, oh, there's all those attachments. So you can fun. get a meat grinder. You can get a spiralizer. You can uh, roll out pasta You know, use it to mm-hmm. roll out pasta. It's great. We should call you back in six months to see if it's still sitting on your counter. Oh, it will be. Okay. Trust me. Good. I got the tangerine orange color. Oh, I like that. That's like Harley Davidson. You're all set. Very good. I love it. Okay, <laughs> Ashley. Thanks, congratulations Ashley. on your new apartment and your new stand mixer. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Okay. Bye. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? This is Julie from Evansville, Indiana, and I'm thrilled to be talking to two of my greatest teachers in the cooking world, so I appreciate your time. My grandparents were raised in the Middle East before they came to the U.S. as young adults, and I grew up watching my grandmother make homemade hummus and pita bread long before it was readily available in the stores. But one thing I'd never noticed her doing is roasting chickpeas. And I would love to know how to make this healthy protein choice available for snacking, topping of salads, vegetable casseroles, etc. But I can't seem to get crispy chickpeas out of that can. So I'm asking for help. I imagine you drain them, you rinse them, you dry them. Yes. And that's not good enough? Well, that's not going to make them crispy. No, no, and then you bake them. I'm just saying, and then you bake them. But drying them doesn't help in the baking process? I have let them set on a rack to, you know, truly really dry. dry out. And then, you know, I've, I've used typical roasting techniques, olive oil, salt and pepper, whatever other ingredients I want to use, whether it's, you know, some cumin or onion or garlic powder. But I can't seem to get them to crisp, like truly crisp. And I'm trying to do it without frying, of course. I would shallow fry them in a large skillet. That would do it. Also, what temperature is the oven you're using? Usually 425. And the other possible, you know, if you do oven fries, you toss the chickpeas or the potatoes in oil, but you preheat the pan in the oven. Have you tried that? 
No, I have not. Yeah, if you preheat the baking sheet. Then um, when they hit the pan, it's they like they When they hit the pan, there's a sizzle. Okay. And that actually might help. I mean, I, I would just do a shallow fry with just a little, like a quarter inch of oil and a skillet okay. in it, and that'll crisp them up. But try the preheating the, the baking sheet. And 425 sounds like that would work fine. What do you think about uh, tossing them with a little bit of potato starch? That's the old French fry trick. Yes. That's actually a good idea. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Because that would give them that nice, yeah. like, little coating on the outside. That's a good idea. Yeah. Okay. Is it readily available in markets? I don't think I've ever bought potato starch. Uh, it is available in, like, a Whole Foods. Actually, oh, okay. no, potato starch is pretty I widely think it's available. it's becoming now. more available, yeah. just as everything else is. No, I think potato starch is pretty available. Yeah. Okay. Gosh, thank you so much. I'm going to give it a try. Okay. Thanks for calling. Sure. Take Bye care. Bye now. This is Most Your Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. If you have a cooking failure, a conundrum, or a complaint, or if you just want to try to stump us, give us a ring. That number is 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843. Or just send us an email. We'd love to hear from you at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? This is Daniel from Charlotte, North Carolina. Hi, Daniel. How can we help you? Well, so I recently moved from a 3,300-square-foot house in the suburbs with a walk-in pantry the size of most bedrooms to a 1,000-square-foot home in the urban renewal area of downtown Charlotte. I downsized my entire kitchen into something the size of my old pantry. As such, I've given away a lot, and I've done really good at getting rid of things I don't need until I got to my herbs, spices, and seasonings. And so what used to take up shelves in the pantry, I now have about a cubic foot of space and 24 slots in a spice storage unit. And I would like some advice from you on what you would consider the essential herbs, spices, and seasonings for a modern kitchen. Well, well, 24 sounds a sufficient number. But this also is a very personal thing. What kind of food do you cook? I am all over the map. I used to cook a lot of more traditional recipes, things that took a while. Now I have moved to more of the 30- and 15-minute meals, with very strong flavors, and if it gets cooked for a long time, it gets cooked in the pressure cooker, and it still gets cooked for a short time. So if, if somebody said to you, you know, I'm going to take away your rosemary, would you like want to fall on your sword, or would that be okay? Because you just haven't used it in a couple of weeks. I would say, have I used rosemary in a couple of weeks? Yes. Would I die if I didn't have it? Probably not. Here's what I would do. I think Divide the 24 by 2. There are 12 spices, pepper, salt, cinnamon, some things you just are going to have, and we all know what those are. The question is, what are the others? Because you have to make some choices. The ones I would put in the category of things I use all the time I didn't use five or 10 years ago, I would say cumin is the number one because that's in everything. I would say smoked paprika is fabulous. Yes, right up there. Cardamom, I think, is one of my favorite spices. Zatar, which is a blend, I use that, I think, on everything I cook now. (laughs) Another thing, which is optional, but we use a lot now, is sumac, which has got a very... Lemony. Lemony, tangy, almost sour flavor. It's used in great quantities in the Middle East, and you can use that on on almost everything. And one other thing you might consider is Szechuan peppercorns. They give you um, almost a numbing taste in the mouth. It's quite particular. Very unique. I'd throw in hot pepper flakes, too. Yeah, that would be part of the basic 12. The basic 12. Another suggestion I have, in India, they have these round spice tins that have six or eight smaller little metal 
canisters in them, and you leave that out on the counter. You can get smaller ones or bigger ones. I have one of those. And so I find I do a lot of my seasoning now from that. And they also contain little measuring spoons if you need them. Uh, so instead of putting everything in your spice drawer, the things you can just add on top of foods when you're finished cooking them at the last second, keep those out in that little spice tin. If you haven't used it in six months, get rid of it. So hopefully that's helpful. That was a good question. We like yeah. to think about that one. Thank you. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. This week's Mill Street Basic is about something called divided fermentation. Now, I've made bread for many years. I've always wondered why one allows yeast doughs to rise in one batch. Then the dough is divided and then allowed to proof again before baking. Well, as it turns out, many bakers use a process called divided fermentation. And that means that once you prepare the dough, you knead it, it's immediately divided into the final amounts called for in the recipe. So, for example, a pizza dough might be divided into four balls right after kneading instead of waiting till after the first rise. That way, you don't have to mess with the dough later, cutting it into pieces and reshaping it. Last year, the Library of Congress released many of Rosa Parks' personal documents, and buried in that trove was a pancake recipe written on the back of a bank envelope. The recipe, interesting enough, calls for peanut butter in the batter. Dan Pashman of the Sparkful Podcast has made those pancakes, and he loved every bite. Dan, how are you? I'm good, Chris. How are you doing? I'm well. Today, I'm going to take you on a a powerful and interesting food-related journey called Rosa Parks Pancakes. Hmm. This recipe is this amazing window, not only into Rosa Parks, who turns out to be a person that a lot of us don't know much about beyond the incident on the bus. And it's also a window into a whole part of African-American food history. And the recipe is a recipe called Featherlight Pancakes. And they're interesting on so many levels. I'll start with why they're interesting on a culinary level. And that is that they have peanut butter mixed into the batter. Really? Yes, huh. peanut butter mixed into the pancake batter. I mean, I, I had never heard of that before I saw this recipe. Had you, you ever, have you ever heard of that, Chris? No, I've never heard of that. Are they feather-like as she separates the whites and whips them up, or why are they feather-like? No, there's just something about the ratios. I was worried they would be heavy, especially with peanut butter in the batter, right. but they, they are as light as advertised. And, and the peanut butter connection, you know, peanut butter in American history, you think of George Washington Carver at Tuskegee Institute in Tuskegee, Alabama. And uh, Rosa Parks was born in Tuskegee, Alabama, and, you know, staged her bus boycott in Montgomery, Alabama. And George Washington Carver's mission and his work with the peanut in the early part of the 1900s was really to try to provide a cash crop for freed former slaves to be able to support themselves. And that was a big part of the reason why he was pushing the peanut as a crop and released his, his sort of seminal work, which is 100-something recipes with peanuts in them that came out right around the time that Rosa Parks was coming of age. And so peanuts occupy a very special and integral place in, in African-American food history that even trace back to, to Africa that came through the Caribbean. There are recipes that go back many hundreds of years for collard greens with with peanuts in them? Yeah, p- peanuts are very big in West Africa. In fact, that's where they came from. You know, it was interesting you mentioned that because I interviewed John T. Edge, uh, who wrote the Potlucker Papers. He's a Southern food historian. He, he talked about, in Montgomery and other towns, a lot of African-American women had restaurants in their home, and that's how they raised money 
uh, to help support people during some of these boycotts. In fact, they would end up having people like Johnson and Kennedy and Martin Luther King uh, would end up at the same table in some of these places. So cooking really financed uh, some of that time, some of those boycotts. It was a way to to make money to uh, to keep people going during the boycotts. That's fascinating. Some of the other things that I found interesting uh, uh, relating to what you're saying about about this recipe is so it's written on the back of a banking envelope, which sort of teaches us two things about Rosa Parks that I didn't know. The fact that she's writing these recipes on the back of a, of a discarded baking envelope shows that she was very frugal. And also that the envelope itself uh, is from a, a bank in Detroit. And it turns out that after after her her protest on the bus that day, Rosa Parks and her husband lost their jobs. They uh, were faced with constant harassment, prejudice, discrimination. They had a very hard time making ends meet and eventually moved to Detroit from Alabama because they were having such a rough time of it and struggled for money their entire lives. And then the other thing about this recipe that, that is probably perhaps the most moving part of it is, so I went and interviewed two of her nieces. Rosa Parks never had kids of her own, but she had 11 nieces and nephews who she cooked for all the time. They know her as Auntie Rosa, and she was a very passionate cook and loved peanut butter and and, uh, made chicken and dumplings. She made a lemonade that, that, that they really loved. And it certainly gave me a new appreciation for her as a more fully realized person as opposed to the sort of one thing I had always been taught about her growing up. Hmm. Well, eventually the boycott was actually very effective. Yes, the buses were desegregated eventually, um, but you know, there were still plenty of issues and are plenty of issues. Well, since you do a food podcast and so do I, uh, let's talk about the pancakes. So yeah. uh, how much peanut butter is in the recipe and, and why is it light? Well, it's a third cup of peanut butter in the recipe. It's, it's, it's not a large quantity. I mean, I would say it made six pretty thick pancakes, and that was with a third cup peanut butter. You could definitely taste the peanut butter, but it was just right. It kind of hits you. It hits you in the back of the tongue. So the, this is uh, two eggs. Is it buttermilk or milk? This is well. See, I, I I should have counted on you to get right to the heart of the matter, Chris. Um, it's one egg, and the the recipe is huh. handwritten was one and a quarter cup milk. However, I subsequently heard from some sporkful listeners uh, who had sort of old grandmas in the South said th- they would just call buttermilk milk in a recipe if it said milk in the recipe. It huh. meant buttermilk. It's on your website, the recipe. Yeah, it's on. It's in the the post for Rosa Parks pancakes at sporkful dot com, and it was delicious. Dan Pashman, a recipe from the 1960s from the Civil Rights Movement, peanut butter pancakes from Rosa Parks. Thank you. Thanks, Chris. That was Dan Pashman of the Sparkful Podcast. You know, years ago, I was given the recipe cards used by Marie Briggs. She's the Vermont baker who taught me how to cook. Some were simple, but others, the recipe for Anadama bread, for example, taught me something about Marie as well as about cooking. Straightforward, intelligent, matter-of-fact, and also parsimonious with words. Like many old-time Vermonters, she knew a lot more than she let on. And, as I have learned over many years, the quietest person in the room is usually the smartest. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late, you can listen to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and TuneIn, also on Google Play and Spotify. Remember to subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every single show downloaded to your phone or tablet each week. 
If you want to learn more about Milk Street, head to 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch our TV show, or order our new cookbook, which is the Milk Street Cookbook. We'll be back next week. Thanks for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers, Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer, Amy Padula. Associate producer, Carly Helmetag. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugarts. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison, with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help, Debbie Paddock. Our theme music is by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. Thank you.